You're listening to the North American Francophone Podcast, hosted in English by Claire-Marie Brisson and proudly recorded in Charlottesville, Virginia. Joining us today on the North American Francophone Podcast, I am pleased to present Joseph Dunn. Joseph is someone who has been engaged with the North American Francophonie with special emphasis on Louisiana in many capacities, from acting as the former executive director of the Council for the Development of French in Louisiana, or CODAFIL, to his current work with Laura Plantation, an historic house museum just outside of New Orleans, which has become a model for Francophone tourism in Louisiana. Joseph, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm absolutely delighted to be here. Thank you so much. What an honor to be in this podcast with all the other people who've come before me and all the others who will come after me. I think we have a lot of things in common and we're in, in many ways uh, or beating the same drum. I entirely agree. And for me, being the interviewer of all of these Franco-Americans during this series, it's so exciting to see how these geographies are similar rather than different. And so I'm really excited to talk to you because you represent so much of what defines how Franco-American voices exist today in North America from a Louisiana perspective. And as a start, how would you describe your own Franco-American experience, past and present? Maybe some defining experiences that pushed you to become engaged in support and eventually advocating for Louisiana's francophone and creolophone communities? Um, I think a lot of it goes back to being a, a very small child. My family were assimilated in Louisiana um, a few generations before I came along, but my grandparents had some friends from South Louisiana who spoke Louisiana French. And then when I was five years old, my church sponsored the building of a mission chapel in the Homa Indian community. And we went down there on my uncle's school bus. And my mother had given me $10. And we're in 1976. And I walked over to this old man in his sort of tin or tol ondulate shed workshop. And I was trying to buy a carved wooden cypress pirogue from him. And I couldn't talk to him. And at five years old, I didn't understand that he was speaking French and I was speaking English. And this younger lady came over and interpreted for us. And I was able to buy the boat, which I, which I still have. But that was really, I think, the first time that I had this consciousness that there was something in Louisiana that should be mine that wasn't. And, and I, wanted, I wanted it. And because of this experience, did you start learning French right away? Or is that something that you did further along down the line? It was a couple more years. And again, my grandparents had these friends from South Louisiana who had moved up to the area where we lived. And so um, oftentimes the monolingual French-speaking grandmother would be with them. And um, so I heard them speaking French among themselves. And then when I was in fourth grade, through the Council for Development of French uh, in Louisiana, Codofil, we had teachers come to my area from Switzerland. So I'm fourth grade, what, eight, nine years old. And it was almost like a weird genetic sort of memory for me. I, I was speaking French pretty well in French as a second language classes um, when, when I was a little boy. Thinking about the interactions that you had with teachers from Switzerland makes me wonder, when you are now in contact with people from various parts of the Francophone world, are there common reactions to the linguistic and cultural richness of Louisiana and French? And more specifically related to you, are there common reactions to the way that you speak French yourself? 
Um, there are lots and lots of um, projected ideas and there's lots of mythology out there about um, Louisiana French, Louisiana Creole and all that goes into it. And it's uh, one of the things that I've come to understand and realize over the years is that everything that's consumed about us as French and Creole speakers in Louisiana here and elsewhere is all of it created and produced through a very American English speaking perspective. And then it's translated into French and then the people elsewhere consume it and then retro project it onto us. So we're constantly in, so those of us who are really engaged are constantly in, in this place where, where we're having to sort of, okay, let's rewind and set the record straight on what your expectations are, this, that, and the other. I speak very neutral, standard, international French. Um, I have a very metropolitan accent when I speak French, and that was the norm in New Orleans where my family were because our linguistic and cultural background and our genealogical background was mostly France. It wasn't Canada. So, you know, that brings us to this idea of, of the mosaic of people in Louisiana who have some French or, or Creole speaking background. Um, the anthropologist Carl Brasseau over at uh, the University of Louisiana in Lafayette has uh, written that there are more than 18 different identifiable groups of people here. So it's this giant mosaic of Europeans, of Africans, of Canadians, of people from the Caribbean, of people from really, really everywhere. But not only is it a mosaic, it's also a kaleidoscope because it's constantly shifting. As someone who is not from Louisiana, I can only imagine how difficult it is to come to an agreed-upon definition of Louisiana French, given the multiple identities that exist there. Do you think that there is an agreed-upon, settled-upon definition of Louisiana French at this point? And in speaking of the multiple identities, is there a way that they converge, or are these identities mostly distinct and separate from one another? We don't have enough time in this podcast to talk about all of those different complexities, but I'll try to. I'll try to. Um, I'll try to condense it. Um, when. And as I've been listening to your your other guest talking about the Franco-American experience, say, in New England um, and in those areas, one of the things that really stands out to me that differentiates that experience from the Louisiana experience is that everybody in the New England experience is white. Right. In Louisiana, there's this great diversity of people. So not only are there white people speaking French, there are black people speaking French, and there are Native American people speaking French, and Creole. Um, like, all, all of them, you know, uh, historically had these, these linguistic varieties going on, and they were exposed to them all of the time. And so over the 20th century, especially since, since English was really imposed as the assimilating language, as the, as the only language of public education in, in our schools beginning in 1921, and, and as we moved through the 20th century, and everyone in their individual racially segregated groups was cut off, really isolated from the linguistic varieties and linguistic diversity that they previously would have been exposed to. It, it becomes very difficult, I think, to, and, and in my experience, to bring people from these different ethnogenealogical groups around a table and try to have them understand that their common language, their common culture is what ties them together as opposed to their skin color being what separates them. 
That makes me wonder, how would you describe the Creolophone linguistic and cultural communities that live in Louisiana? Do you think Creolophones and Francophones are in solidarity to support one another? And maybe in what ways do you think each group manifests its own agency? I, I think it's important, especially for the listeners in, in Canada, to understand and so we come up to a good definition of what the word community is. So in Canada, when you talk about a francophone community, that means that there is a linguistic ecosystem around that community. There are infrastructures. So there are schools, there are churches, there are businesses. Uh, French is spoken in the home. There are all these different kinds of associations and things like that where people can, can come together under that linguistic identity. We don't have that. So when we talk about a Francophone or Creolophone community in Louisiana, we're not talking about infrastructure. We're talking about individual people who speak these languages. And for the most part, our communities as language groups exist online now. You know, so we don't have these common meeting places where we can all come together to discuss these issues and then bring them together as Creolophones or Francophones or the both of them together as real issues to influence society, to influence politics, to influence economy. So that's one of our great, great, great big challenges is trying to figure out how to bring people together so that we can get that sort of thing started. And you know, the, the online presence of, of these different groups of people is important. Now, working together, yes, we are seeing that very, very much so in uh, the people of sort of who are half a generation younger than me. So in their 20s and their 30s, and even younger than that, we're, we're now beginning to see that because they, they understand uh, much better, I think, the, the idea of diversity and, and linguistic rights and things like that, that have been very much inspired by, by Canadian models outside of Quebec in, in, the more, um, uh, in, in, the, in the minority Francophone communities that are outside of the, the Metropole de Quebec. I know that you have actually served in roles where you probably dealt with these kinds of issues, for example, as director of the Conseil pour le Développement du Français en Louisiane, or CODEFIL, from 2011 to 2014, as well as in other administrative and advocacy roles in the Consulate General of France in Louisiana and the Louisiana government, just to name a few. And your voice in the Francophonie is very well known, and maybe you're using these models in these roles. Personally, though, how do you feel your voice and your Franco-American experiences contributed to these causes and continue to do so? In each of those roles, I was the only one. And that's another of the, the, the big challenges that we have, because usually there's going to be maybe only one person within an agency that speaks French. And so that person is then sort of very isolated in trying to make the uh, the case for French language marketing, French language advertising, French language communications, those kinds of things. Because in the whole process of assimilation, even people in Louisiana whose uh, parents or grandparents or families historically spoke one of these languages, they've been so um, programmed to think of them as folkloric that um, they, they don't understand the, the value of it and the interest of it from 
from francophones from outside Louisiana, for example, and what that represents as far as economic impact, as far as reach, as far as brand awareness and all those kinds of things. So uh, it can be very, very isolating and very frustrating when, you know, uh, for example, I was working in Louisiana state government after having worked at the Consulate General of France and uh, would be asked to translate this, that, or the other thing. And would have the assimilated Louisiana person, monolingual Anglophone say, well, um, I Googled it and it says this online. And my response was often, I wrote diplomatic telegrams for the French embassy, right? I, I don't care what Google is telling you. This is the way that you spell it. And this is the way that you say it. Um, and there's, we get bogged down so often in those kinds of debates over, over, the definition of what Cajun or Creole is, or do we put tomatoes in our gumbo or not? And it becomes this quagmire of not focusing on language development and community development and economic development and social and economic valorization of the people who speak our languages. And within the last 50 years, the numbers of French and Creole speakers here have diminished by 90%. And so we're at this critical point where unless we begin to get some traction as people who advocate for these languages and their development, not their preservation, but for their development, actually, um, it, it's, it's, it's a critical moment. And coming from an academic perspective on my end as a doctoral student and university educator, the folkloric aspects tend to be taught to our students in French language classrooms. For example, whenever we talk about Louisiana in our beginner French language course sequence, our textbook talks about Mardi Gras and not much else. And this happens at reputable institutions of higher education all the time. How do you think that maybe we can change things on our end and that perspective? Because this is a real challenge for the entire francophonie and the way it's represented in North America and specifically in classrooms. Oh boy. Um, yeah. So I'm not an academic. Um, I'm a, I'm a tourism, culture, marketing, public relations guy, right? So, and I'm looking every day at, at the practical applications of French. And even here in Louisiana, none of our, our institutions is really focusing on that. Um, you know, there's this focus on, yeah, the 19th century Francophone literature, which is great if you want to be an academic, but if you're a young person coming out of a French as a second language environment or an immersion environment where you have done your, your studies in French, you, you might not want to be a teacher. Not everybody wants to be a professor or, or do that. You know, we, we've got to start looking at creating these spaces in our universities where you can study subject matter in French that will be applicable in the marketplace because no language, I don't care which one it is, no language can exist in a vacuum. There have got to be social and professional and economic applications for it. Otherwise, it's just... And, and that sounds that sounds very capitalist in the way that I'm saying it. But you know, the reason that we see Spanish everywhere is because there's just huge not only population of people who speak that language, but there's also the economic power behind it, which is why we see that the businesses and communication and things like that is is always you know pressed to for Spanish because there's money behind it, right? So coming back to the idea, we have that same issue in Louisiana. We have that absolute same issue in Louisiana in our universities. Tourism is the third largest industry in the state, or at least it was until COVID. It's generating 
$12 billion a year in direct economic trickle-down to the state. And from international visitors, Canadians are number one. And uh, after that, France and, and Belgium and the other Francophone places are way up in there. And those people come to Louisiana and they expect to be able to consume Louisiana tourism and cultural product in French. We have no way in our universities to train our, our young people to work in the tourism industry. There's, there's not a single solitary hotel restaurant tourism class in one of the universities in Louisiana that is taught in French. Language is not even a requirement to get a degree in that specialty. So there's this not only very Anglophone, American, you know, nombriliste, I don't even remember how to say that in English, but nombriliste kind of thing about how we deliver our culture, how do we deliver our music and those, those kinds of things. But um, we, we don't have the things in place to really capitalize on what I have said is our most underdeveloped natural resource, and that is, is our French and Creole languages. Speaking more to your point about the importance of languages, I would be really interested in hearing about what your definition of a francophone is. Because when we hear francophone, a lot of people think that a francophone has to be a native speaker of French. And conceptualizing francophones in the space of Louisiana, what future do you see for the French language and for people who are defining themselves as francophone in North America? I, I've had this debate with lots of my Canadian friends and colleagues and collaborators, and I personally am very taken aback when um, sometimes I'm described as a francophile by Canadians. No, I'm not. Uh, je suis aussi francophone que toi. And one of my uh, friends and collaborators, her name is Erin Segura, and she is now, she does the Louisiana French program at the University of Louisiana in Baton Rouge, LSU, Louisiana State University. She once said, and it brings very, very true, you know, even if people in Louisiana and South Louisiana don't have the language, they've always been immersed in a francophone and even creolophone culture. So it's, it's around us. I mean, all this stuff is around us and we get a lot of it by osmosis. And there are even people here who in their English use French words so they don't even realize they're French. So yeah, it's, 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 it's all around us. Um, coming back to your question about defining what is a Francophone, I, I always go back to the definition of the OIF, the International Organization of the Francophonie, which is someone who speaks French. For me, if you speak French, you're a Francophone. And for me, if you're a Francophile, you like the Eiffel Tower and you like berets and, and, and croissants. So that's, that's a little bit folkloric as a, as a definition, but I, I think changing the way that um, especially our Canadian friends and partners use those terms in a non-political way because those, those are political terms for Canadians and they're not political terms elsewhere. And so in these kinds of discussions, when you bring people from France, from Louisiana, from the different Canadian provinces together to talk about these kinds of issues, I often like to say, let's be very specific from the very beginning of our conversation about what our definitions for these different words is and what those realities represent for each of our different spaces. Um, because community, francophone community, means something very different in Canada than it does here. A francophone means something very different in France 
than it does in Canada. So coming uh, to an agreement about the definitions as a base for these kinds of discussions is, is really important. And what are some challenges that you've encountered when, for example, you present yourself to other people in a Francophone environment as a Franco-American? Are there possibly some stereotypes or some discrimination against those who have learned French in these circles? For example, I know that with some of the interviews that I've had with Franco-Americans in this series, as well as in the podcast in general, there are a lot of Franco-Americans who identify strongly as Franco-American, but who are not raised speaking French, and yet they made a substantial effort to learn the language or are still in the process of doing so. Do you think that there is any discrimination against that effort at this point? Would they be accepted in a francophone circle? Um, I, I, th I think it varies. I mean, because it's a very individual case-by-case -case thing. I can tell you, and I, I put this on my Twitter the other day, it's, it's fascinating how there's this hierarchy of ideas about the way that other people speak French that exist among French-speaking people that doesn't quite seem to exist in English. In fact, I've never really experienced it in English or observed it in, in English. Um, I mean, we, we all know and take for granted that you know somebody from England, somebody from Scotland, somebody from Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, Canada, even within the United States, all these different and varying regional accents and expressions and things like that, um, and we don't even think about those things. I mean, we might say, oh, you have an accent, where are you from? But then the conversation just moves on. In French, it turns into this entire debate about, you know, the quality of someone's expression, uh, their grammar, their syntax. I mean, it's, it's very classist, interestingly enough. And so when I say that I'm from Louisiana, and I get this all the time, and I'm speaking in French, I immediately have to explain why I don't sound like Zachary Richard, why I don't sound like a, a Cajun musician from the 1940s. And you know, I have to go through this whole justification of why I speak French the way that I do and somehow move beyond these reprochements, um, that they're really kind of reprochements for my very neutral metropolitan accent, which was always the way that people in my space spoke French. It's really, really, um, it gets frustrating. It's challenging. As a point of continuity between this interview and the other guests interviewed with the Franco-American Voices series on the podcast, do you think that it is possible to have a Francophone voice in English, even if a person is unable to express themselves with fluency in French? I'll give an example. A couple of friends of mine who grew up with me never learned French, but their father or their mother or their grandfather or their grandmother spoke French as their first language. And because of that, they grew up with someone whose perspectives were influenced strongly by their own Francophone reality. Those perspectives were in a way carried down through the generations and sometimes changed the way that they spoke English, even without speaking French. So with that considered, do you think that it's possible to maintain a Francophone identity or voice without fluency in the French language? Um, I think one can make an argument from, from both sides of that coin or that filter or that prism. I can tell you from my own personal experience that if I did not speak French, I would not be able to see Louisiana and Louisiana history in the way that I see it. One of the uh, Louisiana historians of the late 19th and early 20th centuries was named Alcée Fortier. 
he wrote two different versions of Louisiana history, one of them in English and one of them in French. And each of those histories is a completely different perspective and filter. Um, so uh, for me personally, I would say that um, in my experience here in Louisiana, one of the things that, that happens very often is that you hear people who grew up with family members who were French speakers or, but there's always this, for me, there's always a disconnect there. There's, there's not a full understanding or a full embracing of the nuances and the subtleties of things. And, you know, one of the things that I use quite often speaking about these, these filters is just the words Louisiana purchase versus vente de la Louisiane. Louisiana Purchase versus Sale of Louisiana. And just the one word in there, purchase versus sale, changes completely your relationship to that entire event. And one of them is an English term, an American perspective, and the other one is the is the French one or the French language one. And it, it took me a very, very long time to be able to articulate that and to and to understand it. And I, I just recently also come to the realization that a lot of the stuff that I say, a lot of the, the things that I put on Twitter or a lot of the things that I write on my blog, these are not my ideas. They're, they're not original. These are things that French and Creole speakers in Louisiana knew. All of them knew this stuff. 125 years ago, but English has made us forget. Yeah, I think it's possible to to maintain aspects and to transmit aspects of, of Francophone culture. I think in my own experience, again, because everyone is different, I think the, the a, an understanding of, of, of the language is still really important to fully grasp the um, the depth of it. And I'm sure that my listeners would love to follow up with you after this podcast and explore your blog. How would they be easily able to find you online? Um, my blog is Louisiana Perspectives with an S dot wordpress.com. And it's a it's a bilingual look at life in Louisiana. So you know there are um, reflections on there. There are some little articles and short stories and poetry and just whatever inspires me in the moment. And you'll find stuff on there in English and French and even in Louisiana Creole. And my Twitter is uh, Louisiana uh, seventeen forty two. And thank you once again for this interview. I really appreciated your perspectives, and I'm so glad that your voice is a part of the Franco American Voices series. It's been an absolute pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm really, really honored to be part of this, this great group of people doing the work that we do. For those of you who may be interested in following up with Joseph Dunn after this interview, feel free to send a contact submission form on thefrancophone.com. I'll be sure to send your questions in English or en français to Joseph so he can respond to you. If you're also interested in joining the lineup of interviews for the Franco-American Voices series, send a contact form along to us on thefrancophone.com or send us a direct email at northamericanfrancophone at gmail.com. I would love to represent even more of the diversity of North American Francophones, and your voice would be integral in part of it. Until next time, stay safe and stay healthy.